Looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dawaskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dawaskin. We're getting it going Ugh, like only you can. Thank you. I am pumped, pumped. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Jeff Dewaskin Show. I am Jeff Dewaskin, and this is episode 28. And we've got an amazing episode for you today. But Jeff, aren't all your episodes amazing? Yes, they are. You got me. You got me on that one. Guilty. Guilty as charged. If you haven't caught up on all the past episodes, you're missing out. Carl Gottlieb, Bobby Collins, Dan Zare, Aaron Cummings, Kelly Maroney, Suze Lanier. So many great people. Ah, you know, you know, I love pop culture. I love comedy. I love hearing stories about movies and TV. I love popular trends. And we bring it all together. We bring it all together here on the Jeff DeWaskin Show. So thanks for being here and buckle up. Because this one's going to be a doozy. Another doozy? Yes, another doozy. <laughs> oh, and some exciting news. I'm going to be part of a podcast extravaganza called Indie Pods United, IndiePodsUnited.com. It's November 29th to December 3rd. It's only $10. If you go to that website and sign up, it's put together by my good friend, Tina Marie, who is the host of the Psychedelic Podcast. Check that out. It's such a great podcast. And she's putting together this amazing podcast convention. And it's, I'm part of a live show and I'm speaking on Twitter during it. It's going to be a blast. It's going to be a blast. I also want to give a shout out to my friend Scott Curtis, who just had me on his show, Behind the Bits. That was fun. Look for that and check out his podcast, Behind the Bits. And now it's time for the social media tip. All right. You know I love Twitter. You know I love the hashtags. You know I'm going to read one after my interview with Billy Van Zant. So definitely what I suggest, again, is jump into trends. Find hashtags that are very popular find word phrases that are very popular you can go to the trend section of twitter in any different country and look and see what's popular conversation at that point jump into those conversations and that's a great way to build up your audience do it you gotta do something now that twitter is slowing down our ability to retweet <laughs> i knew it they weren't going to get rid of that function i just knew they weren't ah shame on you twitter and that's the social media tip before I forget, I want to thank everyone who's liked and subscribed and told all your friends about the Jeff Dewaskin show. I love that you love spending week after week with me and hearing me talk to my awesome guests means the world to me. Tell all your friends, say, hey, if you listen to the Jeff Dewaskin show, he's on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. He's everywhere. Why aren't you listening? So please continue to spread the word. I appreciate it. Make sure you subscribe. Go to my website, jeffisfunny.com. Sign up for my mailing list. I'll send you fancy emails, all that kind of good stuff. All right. Thank you. Well, Halloween just passed. Thanksgiving's right around the corner. And you know what that means. Everyone's talking about Christmas, specifically the Die Hard controversy. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? They're already <laughs> talking about this again. It's crazy to me that they just keep talking about whether this movie is or isn't a Christmas movie. Oh, for the love of God, who is calling during my show? I apologize, folks. This is embarrassing. This is not professional at all. All right, hang on. I'm sorry about this. Hello? Hello. 
How did you get this number? I was watching Die Hard. Have you seen it? Yes. Yes, uh, I have. Me too. Yeah, yeah. It's a lovely tale of some German, um, how do you say, party crashes at the beautiful Nakatomi Plaza, who are just constantly being bullied by a New York hot-headed cop, John McClane. He's from Jersey, but he polices in New York. Sorry, Mr. Cowboy. For just wanting to party like it's 1999 with the guests. You think John McLean was a bully? Oh, complete disregard for everything and everyone. We're all stuck at that holiday party. It's no excuse to kill someone, put a ho, ho, ho. Sorry, my halitosis. Ho, ho, ho sign on them. That man was no ho, ho, ho. Killed so many good people. You think they were good people? Did we watch the same movie? I think there were good people on both sides. It just got messy. Even his wife said, John McClane drives people crazy. He was a floor in the ointment that would never hold accountable for the crimes he committed that Christmas day. Crimes he committed? Yes. Yippee-ki-yay, mother. Okay, then. I'm sorry about that. I don't know how anyone got that unlisted number. It's unlisted. My mother-in-law doesn't even have that number. <laughs> She just shows up to the house. Well, I'm not, I guess now that I think about it, I'm not sure which is worse. Anyway, point is, I was watching Darhard. You know, tweet at me. Let me know. At Jeff DeWaskin Show, what do you think? Christmas movie, not a Christmas movie. Let's let the fans of the Jeff DeWaskin Show weigh in on this. And I do want to take a moment just to thank this week's sponsor. We did get a new sponsor this week. Thanks for supporting all of our old sponsors. Really appreciate that. Helps keep the lights on. This week, looking for the perfect getaway? Have you considered Vermont's own Stratford Inn? That's right, Stratford Inn, located right next to the Minuteman Cafe, is the perfect getaway spot, serving everyone since 1774. They say, a week at the Stratford Inn, you'll leave thinking you were dreaming the whole time. All right, well, check that out. Definitely check it out. If you're looking for travel plans, looking to get away, I know we're all locked inside, but if it's a great way to escape and just get somewhere nice, check out the Stratford Inn. All right. Well, definitely support support the sponsor. It helps keep the lights on and keeps us going week after week after week on the Jeff Dewaskin Show. And now, without further ado, I want to share with you my conversation with the amazing Billy Van Zant. All right. I want to welcome to the show producer, writer, actor, People's Choice Award winner, ladies and gentlemen, Billy Van Zant. Welcome Thank to the you. show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh my God, I'm so excited to have you. So when I found out you were going to be on the show, first thing I did, well, I did two things. One is I read your book, Get in the Car, Jane. Before that, I watched Jaws 2, (laughs) 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 which I hadn't seen in a long time, which I know is one of your big, I know most of the, most of your stories in cred is writing and executive producing some of the greatest shows ever. And we'll get into all those, but I watched, I watched Jaws 2 because I want to see the acting in motion. The one thing I wanted to ask you about is at the end, the hat didn't seem to make it all the way through. I was fascinated. I was watching because I was focused on you because I'm watching it because of you. This yeah. round, I hadn't seen it in forever. And the hat, and I'm just like, my God, that hat does not come off his head. And then, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, towards the end, you make the rookie mistake uh, when a shark's on the attack of smashing in the water using the hat, right. and they tell you to stop. And then there's no more hat. You did live, so kudos to that. Well, but- I, I didn't really live, though. Uh, we filmed my death, and that's where I actually lost the hat. The whole story of that movie, I could 
talk four hours on that. We, I was in the original cast of that film. Then they fired the director, they fired the writer, and they recast almost everybody in the movie. And I was uh, lucky enough to be one of the survivors there. And I originally had a gruesome death where I uh, would be swimming towards shore and Roy Scheider pulls me by the hand and only the top half of me came out of the water. The, the ratings board decided that was too grotesque and we were going to get an R-rated movie and then nobody would come see it. So they wanted a PG movie. So they tried to lighten my death by having me on a pontoon kicking towards shore and then the shark would chew the bottom half of my legs off. Still too gruesome. So then we, we actually, they filmed a stuntman dressed like me on a pontoon. They had the shark come crashing down on top of him. They both disappeared under the water and Bob, my character, died. That's why Donna Wilkes screams like a lunatic at the end of the film. But they cut my death out of the movie because it, it just the number of deaths would have given it an R-rated movie. So they quickly filmed me the last thing we shot, I think, was me swimming up on shore, uh, having survived. But if you look at the film, the last shot of the movie, when the camera pulls back, I'm not on the island with the rest of those kids because I'm dead. Uh, so if you want logic on this, you have to assume I swam all the way around the back of the island, and that's where I am. So I, I lost the hat. But I, I, shot, I did the, the stunt myself. They shot it with a stunt man. I, uh, I saw it in dailies, and I said, I want to do that. Well, how come he gets to do that? They said, no, you can't do that. I said, I want to film that. They said, okay, we'll film it, but it has to be the last thing we shoot in the movie. And I said, why does it have to be the last thing we shoot? They said, in case you die. So I did it. They put ropes around my waist. They put me on the pontoon. They had the scuba divers underwater ready to yank me under. And the shark on its little roller coaster track, a couple of tons, whatever it was, came crashing down on top of me. And right as it was about to hit me, the scuba divers pulled me underwater. And it was fantastic. And it's never been seen. And they can't seem to find the footage now, which makes me crazy because, you know, it's got to be somewhere. I want to see it. I didn't know if I lived or died till I went to see it in the movie theater because they didn't tell me. You know, I, I had the, the insert with me living. They had me dying. Who knew? So, but I, 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 I lived. I did live. All right. I'm just a little proud of myself. I didn't even realize what I was tapping into there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I've kept in touch with almost everybody from that film. We're all, we're all great friends. About three years ago, uh, Tom Dunlop, who, play, who played uh, the role of Timmy, he was coming out to Los Angeles for business. And he said, Billy, you want to have dinner? I haven't seen you in a while. I said, sure. I said, you know, I was just about to have dinner with Gigi Vorgan, who's also in the movie, played Brooke. And he said, oh, can you call her and invite her? I said, sure. And I hung up the phone and I thought about it. And I called everybody I could. And through a, a chain of events, within 48 hours, we had the entire surviving cast of Jaws 2 the writer, the director, the producers, Lorraine Gary, the guy who ran Universal. We were all we all had dinner together, and uh, it was fantastic. So I'm still friendly with all of them. Was the writer Carl Gottlieb? Carl Gottlieb, the best. He's the best. I talked to him. He's awesome. He's great. He's just great. And the, the hardest part to I didn't appreciate this at the time because I really wasn't a, a writer at that point. He was hired to rewrite the film from scratch as we shot it. Try and picture that. So he flew, they flew him to Florida and he would spend every day in a hotel room rewriting whatever we were going to shoot the next day. And he only came out at night to have something to eat. And everybody, every single person he passed, because we took over the entire Holiday Inn down there, every single person that he passed, how's it going, Carl? How's it going, Carl? 
How's it going, Carl? I'm surprised he didn't blow his brains out by the time we finished that movie. But he did a he did a, a fantastic job. I, I can't imagine being put in that position as a writer. It was really crazy, really crazy. After talking to him as as a writer, I kind of got the impression that was of his many strengths. One of his key strengths was being able to restructure and recreate storylines and, and scenes and all that kind of stuff. In- and, and versatile and versatile, too. I mean, he, he wrote The Jerk. You know, he wrote Steve Martin comedy and, and he used to write for the Smothers Brothers and he wrote Jaws. I mean, that's a, it's a pretty wide range. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's true. So I have to give Jaws the best shark movie ever. Oh, but, yeah. But yeah. Jaws 2 is, in rewatching it, I, it is the second best. It, oh. I mean, it, I don't think they've really topped it. I mean, I love the Sharknado movies in, in a... Uh, <laughs> of course. In a course. Uh, silly kind of way. But you have the privilege of being in the second greatest shark movie. Ever. Yeah, the funny <laughs> the funny thing is we I, I never thought of it as a horror movie until maybe 10 years ago when all these horror conventions were honoring Jaws. And it's like, I thought of it just as a great film, but it's, I guess it's a horror film. And the weird thing for, for us was Jaws 2, until the Star Wars movies hit, Jaws 2 was the highest grossing sequel of all time for, I don't know, two years, three years, whatever it was. And that was kind of cool. And as a young actor, that meant the residuals were pretty good. That's pretty awesome. That's <laughs> yeah. pretty awesome. Yeah. So you were also in Taps, which... Well, I haven't, admittedly haven't seen in a while. I must have seen that movie. That was one of those movies that was always on cable. So I'm pretty confident I've seen Taps. It's a pretty great film. I think, I think it holds up. I think it holds up really well. Originally it was a, you know, it was a movie that starred Timothy Hutton right off of his uh, Oscar win for uh, Ordinary People and George C. Scott. You don't get better than him. Now it's known as the movie that stars Sean Penn and Tom Cruise. (laughs) And it was Sean's first movie and it was Tom's second movie. And we were at the... Valley Forge Military Academy in Pennsylvania is where we shot it. And they put us through all the paces that the cadets went through with the rifles and the the parade marching and all that stuff. We were there, I guess we did that about four months. And the first month was just rehearsal and learning all the all the technical things we had to learn. And I played Bug, the guy in charge, little guy in charge of the radio. And uh, over the course of those four weeks of rehearsal, they realized that the guy playing uh, the role that Tom Cruise eventually played they, he had a different take than what they were looking for. And Tom, who had a very, very small part underneath that guy, they switched the roles. And Tom went from, you know, having a minor supporting role to having a career making role. It was really, uh, it was it was fun to watch because I was tucked up in the rafters watching him film that last scene where he's shooting at everybody and the room's blowing up. It, that You knew right that. You knew, I knew watching it being filmed. This guy is going someplace. And uh, the funny thing for me on that was Tom was very naive, very, very young, very naive. And Sean, he'd just come off of Slab Boys on Broadway, and everybody was catering to Sean. He wanted to stay in character the whole time and all that. And because Tom and he uh, did not get along in the movie, uh, Sean went out of his way to antagonize Tom in scenes that he wasn't in. He would show up on days that he wasn't supposed to even be filming and he'd stand behind the camera and give Tom the finger while Tom's trying to do some emotional thing. It was hilarious to watch, but I don't I don't think it was really fair <laughs> to Tom at all. They had to have been intimidating. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what was intimidating was George C. Scott. Nobody talked to him. None of us were, we were all afraid to talk to the guy. And he didn't, he didn't go out of his way to talk to us either, I'll say. He had a guy that he, he used to travel on movie sets with a guy that he paid to play chess with him between scenes 
good job. So uh, if he wasn't filming or in his hotel room, he was playing chess. So none of us talked to the guy at all, but it was pretty, uh, pretty interesting. That's too bad. That would have been a good way to get to know people because I'm sure yeah. you, would have, you played yeah. chess with them. That would have been an amazing. So, oh, yeah, I used to play chess with George C. Yeah, Scott. Yeah. And I'm a, I would have beat him. I'm a good chess player. <laughs> uh, but we, we all stayed friends after the film. Sean and I were tight for, I don't know, six, seven years or so. And Sean lived out in, uh, he lived in, in California and I had just moved out here. I used to, I used to I used to drive by Lucille Ball's house all the time because I wanted to meet her. She was the reason I wanted to I went into comedy and I wanted to meet her. Today we call it stalking, but back <laughs> then it was just being a tourist and I would go drive down her block cuz all the celebrities I knew Jimmy Stewart was in this house, Jack Benny was over there, all these different celebrities. And so anytime somebody came to town, I would take them, you know, to see the star homes. It would be that one block. When Tom came to town to live, uh, Sean and I picked him up at the airport, and I went straight to Lucy's house. And he didn't know what to make of this at all. And Sean just used to go with me occasionally because he thought it was hilariously funny that I was being this stupid. But I wanted, you know, maybe one day she'll walk out the front door and I can finally introduce myself. So at some point, Lucille Ball, Tom Cruise, and Sean Penn and I were parked at your curb stalking you. So yeah, so that was that was that was fun. That is funny. I was talking to Kelly Maroney who worked with Sean Penn and Fast Times of Richmond. Oh, I, I know Kelly very well. Yeah. yeah. She's she's awesome, right? She's great. And she's fantastic. And she was saying he was Piccoli the whole time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And she used to, uh, she was roommates with Pam Springsteen, who was the other cheerleader in the movie, Bruce's sister. So the four of us used to hang out a lot back then. Uh, they had, a, I don't remember where their house was. All I remember is one neighbor called to complain about the noise. And so Sean went out and bought bigger speakers, plugged them in and blasted that poor person to, to death. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, Kelly's terrific. I, I love her. Well, since you mentioned Springsteen, I'll just use this for a quick pivot. So your brother, Stevie Van Zandt, is in the E Street Band. Yes. Have you been to a lot of concerts? I mean, I imagine you a million Oh, yes. <laughs> I've, been, I've been to almost all the concerts. In fact, somebody said, somebody was asking, what's everybody's first concert that you've ever been to? And they mentioned this one, they mentioned this one. And I said, uh, Steel Mill. I said, Steel Mill. I said, yeah. My brother and Bruce Springsteen and uh, Gary Talent, before they were in the E Street Band, they were in a big, you know, the band Steel Mill. And, and I went to Ocean County College. I think I was probably 12, 10 years old. My mother took my sister and I down there. And we that was my first show. Yeah. And the new album is fantastic if you haven't heard it. It is just fantastic. I think there's a song on there called Ghosts that is uh, probably jumping up into my top 10 of all uh, Bruce and the E Street Band songs. It's really terrific. And the and the documentary is fantastic. His uh, last album was amazing, too. And I did note that the documentary dropped today, I believe, on Apple Plus. Yeah, TV. yeah, it's good. It's really good. And they have footage, old footage meshing with the, the new footage. It's really terrific, terrific film. He, he played my he played my mother Bruce played my mother's funeral which was pretty uh, awesome she said she had a you know a couple she we knew she was sick and all that and at one point she said you know I, I want Bruce to sing at my funeral I was like okay sure good luck and he came we had it was a it was a good show actually Darlene Love sang my niece Eva sang and Bruce sang and uh, I was I was the MC I was the uh, the George Jessel of the evening it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a great funeral as far as funerals go it sounds like a hell of a funeral what did Bruce sing Sandy yeah, he sang Sandy it was really it was really moving. I kept thinking he's gonna—he's got so many songs with Mary in it. My mother's name was Mary, so he's got to be singing Mary, something with Mary. He sang Sandy, so but it's a, it was great. It was great. He went the other way with it. Yeah, yeah. that's great. It sounds like uh, it was an excellent celebration of life, which yeah, is what they should be. 
Very cool. So let's see what else. So, okay, Lucille Ball, obsessed with? Is that a fair phrase? <laughs> yeah. When, <laughs> I was, when I was a kid, I knew I wanted to perform. I liked making people laugh. I got, uh, there was something about the comedy in I Love Lucy that I related to. And this may sound completely weird, but this makes sense to me. I think when you were starting out, of course, I was a little kid at the time, but I think when you're starting out, the people that you are attracted to, it's because you have the same ear as them comedically. I think there's a a comedy to me is musical and it's a rhythm and all that stuff. There was something that connected, I connected with, with I Love Lucy. Plus the fact that it was outrageous comedy, but it was believable outrageous comedy, not just stupid stuff. Back in New York and New Jersey, where I'm from, uh, it was on TV six, eight times a day. And I watched it six, eight times a day. And I started studying her timing and I started studying the structure of the scripts that her writers did. And that taught me how to write. It taught me how to write comedy. It taught me how to plant seeds along the way that pay off in the final scene, all that. So I was, I was, I was obsessed with her. I, I almost met her once. In fact, I had put together, it's going to sound like I did more than I did, but I had put together a movie for Sean Penn. Uh, somebody had sent me a, a script to uh, the movie at close range because they wanted me to give it to my brother to give to Bruce Springsteen so they could probably get his music to be in the movie. And I don't, I don't do that. Don't send me any scripts. We don't take advantage of that friendship. But I read the script and I said, Sean, you have to option this movie. This is, this is a great role for you. Sold him on it. And he finally read it and he, and he bought the script, uh, which ended up starring Christopher Walken and him. He was, and Sean said, I'll play the lead and, and you'll play this other little role. And uh, I said, great. So a couple of years, two years go by, I guess. And I'm meeting with the director, uh, Jamie Foley, about doing that film. And in the middle of the meeting with Sean and Jamie, I hear Lucille Ball's voice coming through the vent in the building. I said, what is that? And Sean starts laughing because he knew I was a psycho fan of hers. And he said, she's rehearsing right next door, a TV movie. And Sean said, turned to Jamie, went, let's end the meeting so Billy can go in the other room. And I said, okay, great. So the casting director, I don't know, she gave me like a jacket or something. So I looked like a maintenance man. And I went, I just walked into the room Lucy was rehearsing in. And I pretended to fix the air conditioner, which wasn't broken just so I could watch her rehearse for a couple minutes. And then I got out of there before I got this woman fired. But so that was sort of my first attempt to meet, to meet Lucille Ball. And then Sean and I used to go drive by her house. But I, I did eventually get to meet her. And it was pretty phenomenal. My friend Ann Dusenberry, who was in Jaws 2, played Tina in Jaws 2. She got cast as Lucy's daughter in uh, Life with Lucy, her last TV show. And I got a phone call from Ann. She said, you want to come out? I said, I'm coming out. So I jumped on a plane. I came out to California. And I wanted to meet and I wanted to work with her, but I wanted to meet and watch her rehearse. And I got to the sound stage for the first day and Ann came up to me and she said, Billy, I'm sorry, it's a closed set. They're not going to let you in. And I went, oh, come on. So I said, okay, fine. And then I went through a back door and I snuck up to the back of the bleachers anyway. And I, so I wanted to watch, you know, so I was hidden in the back of the bleachers up there. And uh, then next thing I know, Lucy and the cast come in and they sit down to read the scripts. And all of a sudden, Lucy looks up and she sees me up in the bleachers. I thought, oh, God, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get thrown out. I'm going to get Anne fired. But instead, she walked all the way up to the bleachers and she looked up and she said, hello, Billy. I heard you were coming. And for the rest of the week, there, it was a closed set with one exception. 
me. I got to stand there and sit there and watch her rehearse. And it was a master class and it was fantastic. And between scenes, she would tell me stories about the Marx Brothers. And, and all, it, was, it was phenomenal to the point where the director came up to me at one point and he went, well, you knock it off. And I said, what? He said, she's telling you too many stories. My day is getting longer. I said, okay, okay. And eventually, very long story short, I got a role on the show. And then she invited me to her house to see the first episode of Life with Lucy air, which was also phenomenal. We weren't, we were friendly. I, you know, she wasn't my pal or anything, but we, uh, she, she wrote me a couple letters after that. And I wrote her a couple letters and, uh, and it was, uh, it was fantastic. It was like a little kid, little kid in a candy store for me. And the, one of the best moments for me was the day I, I walked in to be on the show for the first time. I had like three lines or something. Gail Gordon came up to me and stuck out his hand and said, welcome to the family. Chill went up my spine. It was pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. That story would have been a great story even if she just said your name, right? Even if it, it didn't <laughs> go any farther than that, I would still be go, Lucille Ball once said my name. You yeah. know what I mean? Because that's... Yeah, it's pretty pretty good. I called my... She was my girlfriend at the time, Jane Milmar, who was my writing, was my writing partner. She was back in New Jersey putting a... We were about to open a theater and we were about to take a show off Broadway. I had dumped all that on her so I could go out and meet Lucy. At one point during the rehearsal, the director started a give me a piece of direction on some little thing I was doing. And uh, Lucy said, leave him alone. He knows what he's doing. He's a very talented comedian. And I called Jane. I said, you know, if the plane goes down on the way home, I'm okay. Because <laughs> uh, that was pretty, pretty cool. That is awesome. That is really, really, really awesome. Oh, I, I, I got to finish. I got to finish telling you about uh, uh, Sean and Tom. This, this makes me laugh. I haven't told this much. I, so I put together that movie for Sean. And then came time to film the movie, and I get a call from Sean, very apologetic, that I can't be in the film in that role because uh, the director thought I was too old for the role. And, I, you know, these things happen. I understood. I didn't like it, but I understood. So uh, a couple months later, uh, Sean and Madonna get married, and I'm invited to that. So I show up at the wedding, and I'm talking to Tom Cruise, and this guy comes up. He introduces himself, and I, I said, oh, how do you know Sean? He said, oh, I just finished a film with him. I said, oh, really? What role did you play? And he mentioned my role. Now, this guy looked 10, 15 years older than me. So Tom starts laughing at me for the fact that I got screwed out of my role. And uh, I thought, oh, you, you creep laughing at me for that. So towards the end of the night, Tom says, uh, Billy, would you do me a favor? There's too many paparazzi following me around. Can you drive me to my car? I parked a couple miles away and I took a cab here. I said, sure. I said, I'll get my car from the valet. I'll signal you. You come out and I'll drive you to your car. And he said, great. So at the end of the night comes. We're ready to leave. I get my car from the valet. I signal to Tom to come out. And as he's approaching my car, I took off and left him there surrounded by paparazzi. And they're snapping pictures left and right. And he's, he's mortified. And uh, then he told me later, he thought it was funny afterwards, but not then. He said he jumped into the very next limo that pulled up and it turned out to be Andy Warhol. Very surreal day, this whole thing was. And he said, uh, Andy Warhol and his, and his entourage, nobody said one word to him the entire car ride, they just stared at him like it was a painting. And then he got out and went on his way. And then he called me up and cursed me out. <laughs> but, but I got even with him for laughing at me. That is hilarious. Yeah. That is so funny. Did you ever get even at Sean Penn, though, for not even putting you in the movie? No, I'm still waiting. <laughs> I'm still <laughs> waiting. <laughs> no, no. It actually it was funny when, uh, when uh, President Obama was on uh, Jimmy Kimmel, Sean Penn was the other guest. 
And out of the blue, and I hadn't, I haven't talked to, uh, to Sean in, in a couple of years. I'm sitting there watching the show, and all of a sudden, he starts telling the story of me taking him and Tom Cruise to Lucille Ball's house, and he made me sound like. Oh, man, perhaps I am, but he made me sound like such a psychopath <laughs> that, that it was, I got a lot of phone calls that night. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but anyway, no, I'm still waiting for, I'm still waiting for another role in that, in a film, but we'll see. I'm kind of, I've been kind of busy, so it's all right. <laughs> Very cool. So you mentioned Jane Milmore. She was your partner, writing partner for yeah, 46 years. Yeah. We met in high school. We were actors uh, from two different high schools at a drama competition at a local theater. And uh, the producer of that theater put Jane and I in uh, a Star Spangled Girl, Neil Simon comedy. And we toured that for two, three years uh, around New Jersey. Back then, this was the height of dinner theater. If there was a four foot space in, in a restaurant somewhere, they'd shove a stage in it. And you go in and do a show. We did that. We did that forever. We started dating immediately. Uh, we broke up. We dated. We broke up. We dated. We did that for 13 years. And then we finally said, you know what? This is ridiculous. Let's, you know, we, we sort of grew up, I guess, would be the short version of that. We grew up and decided we were best off as friends, except for the fact that we despised each other at that point. So, but right then is when we hit big in TV, we said, hey, you know what, uh, looks like the money truck's about to come in. Let's suck it up and work together anyway. And we did. 46 straight years. Basically, we had a, a, you know, we weren't married, but we had an ugly divorce. We were enemies. We got back together as friends. We got back together as best friends. We got back together as basically soulmate best friends and all without missing one single day of work in 46 years. I'm, I, I'm more impressed. I'm more impressed with myself for that than any of the awards we may have gotten. But uh, yeah, she passed away in uh, in February, which has been very rough, very rough. Came out of left field and she died way too young. I'm not quite sure how I'm, how I'm proceeding without her right now, but uh, we had a good 46 years. We had a good run. Very sorry for your loss. Thank you. Thank you. I, I lost a close friend to pancreatic cancer as well. So uh, yeah. Awful, awful disease. And it came out of left field. She was perfectly healthy. She felt fine. She'd even had blood work, I think, two or three weeks prior. Had her annual physical. Everything was fine. And then one day she just turned yellow. And it was like, Jane, something was wrong. And she went to the doctor and found out what that was. And uh, we thought it was a mistake. We thought it was, you know, that can't be right, you know, to the point where she insisted we work two, three days a week the entire time she was sick. She was sick 15 months. We have a lot of half-written projects that are back on the shelf and in the files that I'll, I'll eventually finish at some point. So, so the book is a nice, the title is a nice homage. Yeah. Uh, I was, uh, the, the book, uh, is get in the car, Jane adventures in the TV wasteland. It's a memoir of our, our, our time writing for television. So every chapter is a different TV show we worked on. And hopefully the, the idea was it was a bunch of funny stories, behind the scenes stuff, a little gossipy, figured it'd make a good beach read, you know, and you could read a chapter on Newhart and put it down and come back three weeks later and read a chapter on Andrew Dice Clay or something. It turned out to be a nice homage to, to Jane, which was not the intention when I wrote it, but I'm glad it did. And she was around to, uh, she edited the, she picked the pictures for the book and she corrected a couple things. She said, I didn't throw a teapot at you. I threw a vacuum cleaner at you. I said, oh, I'll put it, I'll change it. So, so, <laughs> so, yeah, we were, <laughs> we got some good scripts out of those bad times. Let me tell you. <laughs> All right. Well, let, let's, um, let's talk about some of those, those good times together and some of the yeah. cool stuff that you guys did together. So one of your first shows together was the New Heart Show. 
with Bob yeah, Newhart? Bob Newhart, uh, the one up in Vermont with Larry Darrell and Darrell. We were hired by uh, Mark Egan, Mark Solomon, who had, talk about coincidence, they had worked underneath Bob Carroll Jr. and Madeline Davis, who created I Love Lucy. And they worked for them on Alice, and now we were going to work for them. So it was the same sort of schedule, protocol, uh, style, and it was great. And we got along great with them. We were in the seventh year of Newhart. We were offered Murphy Brown, first time it came on the air, or Newhart. Uh, Murphy Brown only had an order of 13 shows. Newhart had 22 shows, and we went, let's take the 22. And I'm so glad we did. Bob Newhart, not only is he brilliant, but he was the, the kindest, uh, most giving guy. And I learned right then that the star of the show sets the pace of the show for everybody else. I've worked on some shows where the, the lead is a nightmare, and it makes going to work, you know, horrifying. Bob was, it was one big family on that show. He spoiled me for everybody that came after him. Uh, and the fun, another fun part was he used to, uh, he used to warm up his own audience. He'd come out and do uh, stand up bits from his, his famous, uh, record. And so the audience always got like a little five minute stand up bit from him before we did the show. And it was, it was great to watch. That's pretty cool. I think yeah. that show is, well, it, it is great. And his original show is great too, but the new hard show specifically is also renowned for having like the greatest end scene of any show. Yeah. Ever. That was that was fun to be there that night. We, we we planted a rumor. We were asked to plant the rumor through the audience that uh, the, there was a big final scene. Everybody knew there was going to be some sort of final scene. And we uh, we spread a rumor that because right before that scene happened, Bob got hit in the head with a golf ball in the in the in the scene prior. And what what ended up being filmed is then he wakes up and he's in bed with Suzanne Plachet from the other show. But in but what what we told everybody was that, you know, Bob's going to die and go to heaven and George Burns is going to be God and that's going to be the big secret, you know, thing. So everybody was anticipating George Burns coming out. And then the, as soon as they pulled the, uh, the the flats in front of the set and people saw the bedroom from the old show, they went berserk. Uh, I'm sure they, they, they must have cut three minutes of applause out before they ever filmed the actual uh, scene. Boy, did I love seeing that. That was great. Who came up with that? It's a brilliant. Lot, a lot of people have taken credit for it, but uh, Julia Butt Duffy, who is a, a good friend still, she said she was there when Bob's wife, Ginny, suggested it, probably three years prior to me even being there. So a lot of people have taken credit for it, but I, I can verify it was uh, Ginny Newhart who came up with that, and it was brilliant. So brilliant. And yeah. it keeps them forever having to do a reunion show. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. The weird thing on that show was it start. If you look at it from the beginning, uh, Barry Kemp created a show that was very simple. It was a you know a, a guy and his wife opening a bed and breakfast in Vermont. Very sweet little show. By the time we came on, we had turned it into Green Acres, and it was so surreal and so bizarre, and the characters are so crazy. I, I, I I've never asked uh, Barry Kemp what he thought of what his show turned into. But, uh, you know, if that were my show, I would have been horrified that people have done something with it, except for the fact that it was brilliantly funny. I thought it was great. A great cast. Yeah, everyone, everyone on that show was great. I love that show. Yeah. So great job. Great job. I enjoy I enjoy all your work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, and then you went to work with Jamie Lee Curtis, who I wish would do more TV. She, she's so funny. And then, uh, and Richard Lewis with Anything But Love. Yeah. Right? Richard, what was it like being with Richard Lewis? Because is, is he that neurotic yes. in real life? <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, he is. He is. He's, he's, he's a good friend. And, but it's funny. He's, 
he's he's neurotic and he knows it and he's made a good career out of it. When he uh, he asked when after that show, a couple of years after that show, he called uh, Jane and myself to uh, to write a show for him, starring uh, Don Rickles as his father, and called Daddy Dearest. We wrote for him twice. We wrote uh, Anything But Love, and then we wrote Daddy Dearest. And I would write for him again. I just I think he's brilliantly funny. He is so funny, so funny, and so is Don Rickles. Oh man, nicest guy. I, that was probably my most. I've done a lot of stuff. That was probably one of the most fun things I ever worked on. Don was brilliantly funny, as everybody knows. But uh, also, like Bob, one of the sweetest guys you ever met in your life. But he 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 just destroyed people left and right. He was very timid and quiet until he realized, you know, there's more than two people in the room, and then he would just perform. So uh, if I, you know we were having dinner and a waiter would come over to the table, he'd do 15 minutes on the waiter, and then the guy would go away, and Don would suddenly become a you know quiet little guy again. <laughs> You know, uh, but on that show, when you rehearse a TV show, you usually have an empty studio except for the actors and the director. And the, but when we did that show, every day of the week, we had people from all over the studio come and pack the bleachers to watch the rehearsals because they wanted to be insulted by Don. It was really crazy. People were like, he insulted me today. It's like, okay, get out of here. We're trying to work. And, uh, and, and what Don would do is after each scene... As soon as, as soon as the director would yell cut, he would start attacking people in the audience, the cameraman, all this sort of thing. And we had the good sense. I, I would like to take credit for it, but Frank Pace, my producer, did this. He told, we, we discussed it and agreed, we never turned the camera off. So the second they yelled cut, the cameras were still on and they were just told, follow Don, follow Don. And he would attack somebody in the audience. And we ended up taking all the outtakes. And ending each episode with maybe two, three minutes of outtakes. And uh, they were as funny as the show. It was so good. The problem for us was it was at the beginning of the height of political correctness. And Don Rickles' entire act is politically incorrect. So it was a, it was an interesting balancing act. And I guess we failed because they canceled the show. <laughs> but I refused, to, I refused to tame the show up. I wanted it to be a, a good showcase for what Don did. And I thought we did that. And the, 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 the audience was great for it. We had really high ratings. And the critics, every single critic despised us. I have, I have a, a, uh, probably a three-inch thick pile of horrible reviews from that that make me laugh so much. Jane used to, I was going to put, put them in the book. And Jane said, don't put those in the book. And I said, yeah, but they're hilariously funny. The LA Times said Jane and I should be beaten with wire hangers for writing this show. Uh, you know, it was just, and that, that was the best one we got, you know. But I did, I loved working on the show. Renee Taylor was the wife, another hilarious woman. And the first professional job I had was in her show, Lovers and Other Strangers. Um, not with her, but I did, did her show. And I was able to hire her and, uh, and Joe Bologna came on the show as well. Boy, we had fun. And I used to, one stupid thing I did, probably wrong. Anybody who I had grown up watching, I wanted them on the show. So I pulled Hunts Hall out of retirement from the dead, you know, the the Bowery boys uh, for one role. I, Kay Ballard came in, thanked me for putting her back on TV. Uh, Angie Dickinson, all these people. Uh, Richard Lewis went on Howard Stern, who made fun of the fact that we had all these old people on our show. And he said, who's next? Rosemarie and Imogene Coca? And I laughed at the thing as I heard it on the radio, and, I, and then I turned the radio off, and I called Frank Pace, our producer. I said, 
forget forget the deal with Imogene Coke and Rosemary because I was actually <laughs> bringing them both on the show. So, but we had we had a lot of fun doing that. Well, it must have been a blast for you to be able to work in all the people that inspired you or made you laugh and you could bring them into the show. I think yeah. that's awesome. The weird thing, it, it was, it was great. And I, and I, and I've tried to do that every time I can, but the studio people and the, the network people, they just didn't get it, you know, and they, they still don't. I, like I brought Hunts Hall in and he, he had a tiny role as a pe- uh, pretzel vendor on the street of New York. After the read through, uh, one of the network guys said, Oh, you got to fire him. So what do you mean you got to fire him? Oh, he's too old. He's never gonna be able to, learn this at all i said will you give me a break just watch by the end of the week they had asked him to be in three pilots they were making (laughs) (laughs) you know and it seems it seems to be that way all the time the the reason those the old timers uh, are famous is because they're good and they know their craft why wouldn't you want to use them so i read daddy dears is also well known for being frank sinatra's last acting role yeah i was i was thrilled to death with that because the second we we knew we had the show we knew don used to open for frank and was good friends with them and jane right from the beginning we got to get frank sinatra i said i'm not going to ask don you know it's the same way people asking me to ask my brother to ask bruce springsteen to do i don't do that i don't take advantage of people's friendships that's not that's 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 bad so i refuse to do it I hinted, but I refused to actually do it. And uh, on his own, Don said, you know what? I'd like to ask Frank. I was like, well, if you insist, you know, bring him on. Okay. The rule was Frank said he would be on the show, but it had to be on a day he felt like it, if he felt like it, period. And we said, sure. So we left the set to the casino scene up. We had uh, extras on call ready to come in and fill the thing. And every day we waited for the phone call. And one day we got a phone call. Uh, Frank wants to do the show. And everybody started freaking out. Frank wants to do the show. Bring the extras in. Bring the camera guys in. And everything was set up. And we waited for him to show up. And whenever he showed up, he showed up. Whatever he was wearing was his costume. We had the lines on cue cards. Gracious enough to do it twice. We were only expecting once. He did it twice. And then he got in the car to leave. And he turned to Tony O, his, uh, his road manager, and said, God, what were we, like three minutes? This TV business is good. We got to get into this. And he went home and Jane came running into the soundstage. And I said, where were you? She said, I wanted to fix my lipstick. I want to look good for him. Where is he? I said, he's home now. You missed him. He was only here three minutes, four minutes, whatever it was. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, but he, but uh, very proud of the fact that he was, uh, his last sitcom was on our show. Yeah. Very cool. So then, so then somewhere in this timeline, the, they rediscover the original pilot for I Love Lucy. Yeah, this was a big thing for me. Nobody had Lucy and Desi uh, filmed their own pilot because nobody believed them as a couple, which was insane because he was Cuban and she was American, you know. So they actually went out on the road uh, in vaudeville to do an act to see if audiences would accept them as a couple, even though they had been married for, I think, 10 years at that point. And, And so the whole thing was ridiculous. But so they, they put together their own pilot. They paid for it. And uh, one copy went to CBS. And one copy went to uh, a, a friend of Desi's and a fishing buddy uh, uh, who was a, an international clown uh, called Pepito the Clown. He was very big in Europe. He was he guest starred in, the, in the, the pilot. So they gave him, apparently, a copy. Well, nobody knew he had. they had that copy. For all, for all anybody knew, the pilot was lost for 40 years. 
it was discovered by, uh, we were under development to a guy named Bud Grant, who had been president of CBS. And he uh, was at the, the widow of Pepito's house. And she was showing home movies and just happened between the birthday footage and the Christmas footage, there was the I Love Lucy pilot. So he came into our office and said, uh, you know, uh, I just found the I Love Lucy pilot. You want to do want to do something with it? And, and Jane said, well, you don't have to ask him and I'm not going to have a choice. So we went to CBS and we said we found the I Love Lucy footage, the, the pilot. And they said, great, we own it. And we said, we know, but we have the footage and we'd like to do a special about the pilot. And they said, oh, no, no, we want to cut it to 22 minutes so it'll fit into a half hour uh, segment. And we said, no, we're not going to give you the footage. And they, so they gave us an hour to, for us to do a TV special. And we, the, the pilot itself, I think, was 35 minutes long. So we had a couple, we had 15 minutes or so to film. Knowing, knowing every interview that Lucy and Desi ever gave, I knew where to pull so they could tell the story in their own words. And we wrapped that around the, the, the pilot. It ended up being the highest rated show of that year. We got an Emmy nomination. My big reward was the fact that at the end of the episode, that I Love Lucy famous heart closed. And in that heart, it said, produced by Billy Panzant and Jane Milmore. Hmm. So that was pretty good. That was better. I think that was better than winning the Emmy, but I still wanted to win that Emmy. <laughs> <laughs> Both would have been great, but yeah, small wins. The heart meant more to you. Yeah, it did. So there's always been some weird Lucy connection. Every couple of years, something will pop up where, where it all comes back to that. So what I, I found interesting when I was reading your book, her daughter, her daughter, Lucy Arnaz, was convinced to do it Originally turned you down to host it. But it was well, we, she didn't turn us down. We never asked her because her mother oh. had just died a year prior. And I thought it would be tasteless to ask her to come and do this. We were in negotiations with Carol Burnett to come in and do it because they were good friends, uh, she and Lucy. Before we closed anything with Carol Burnett, we got a phone call from Lucy Arnaz, who was now in charge of her parents' estates. And for them, the estate had to approve the footage we were using from those interviews to put into the TV special. So as a result of that, Lucy Arnaz had to read our script. And she called up and she said, I've never seen anybody pay honor to my father before, which you're doing here. I want to come host this thing. Uh, she said, if you, if you, <laughs> I think the quote was, if you don't let me, I will pick at the studio. And it's like, you're in. So she came to work. She did the she did the narration at the opening and closing. What we didn't realize, or I did anyway, but it was the one year anniversary of her mother's death when she was actually working for us, and that felt very uncomfortable for me. But she was she was a trooper, man. She was great. Perhaps she felt it was kind of an honor to yeah, maybe the, the universe had brought it together. The but it's it is interesting because Desi Arnaz. The thing that always fascinated me about Lucy, and I remember we went to Universal Studios you know, with the family, you know, this Shrek ride, this, you know, yeah. there's a little area, which I spent mm -hmm. a lot of time in, which is basically an I Love Lucy museum. section. Yeah. Museum, right. Yeah. And, you know, they pretty much invented the sitcom, right? They invented they the entire concept of reruns exists because of them. Absolutely. Right? They were not just funny people with a great show. And I mean, they, they're responsible. We, without them and their production company, right? We wouldn't have Tom Cruise owes them a thank you, right? There's your other connection for uh, Mission Impossible, right? <laughs> yeah. And a, Star a, little, Trek. a little show called Star Trek. Lucy, that was after uh, their divorce. And Lucy took over Desi Lu. She approved, she approved Star Trek. Uh, it's supposed to be a wagon train in, in outer space or something like that. But, exactly. Uh, and the yeah. Untouchables and Manix. And Star Trek, though, later, a little actor named Billy Van Zandt will star yeah. in Star, Star Trek, the motion picture. <laughs> yes, it was so, so weird for me. 
the director was Robert Wise, which is pretty impressive. Uh, you know, everybody knows him from Sound of Music and West Side Story and edited Citizen Kane and all the Orson Welles stuff. So I got to, I got to watch him work as he directed as an editor. He would film exactly what he needed out of, let's say, a master shot. And then he'd cut the camera. And then he'd do a close-up, but just what he wanted from the close-up, and he'd cut the camera. So you can't re-edit his movies. Smart guy. But uh, I was cast as an alien on the on the, the bridge of the Enterprise in the first Star Trek movie. And for a sp- split second, I was told, Leonard Nimoy may not do the movie, so you can, you, you'll be the new alien. And I was like, oh, this is going to be great. Well, of course, the next day, Leonard Nimoy signed his contract and came to work. So I, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, in the background, you know, typing on a keyboard and staring at the big screen. And I had a couple of lines and I, and I said to Robert Wise, I've never, I've never told anybody this. I, I said to Robert Wise, what do I do about my voice? Cause my voice is weird. I mean, my voice is unique, but it's not, you don't think an alien when you hear my voice. And he said, Oh, don't worry about it. We'll just, just say the lines and we'll do something to your voice in post. I said, okay, fine. Well, he never did anything to my voice in post. So you see this movie and the, the, the few lines of mine that remain in the film, it's, you know, this alien with Billy's voice coming out. It's very strange. But I, I, I did like everybody on that film. I especially like William Shatner. And I know a lot of people give him flack for something. I don't know what, but I like them a lot. Uh, in fact, we wrote our, Jane and I wrote our first play uh, while I was on Star Trek, because I had all this elaborate makeup on, and there was so much secrecy, they didn't want me leaving my dressing room at lunch. So I brought my typewriter before computers. I brought my typewriter in, and Jane and I wrote ourselves a play. And while she was there, I said, "Come on, I'll sneak you in. You can see us shoot a little stuff, a bunch of stuff." So I brought her into the soundstage, and I hid her behind some, you know, boxes and cables and stuff, so she could watch. And we started shooting a scene, and Shatner stopped the shoot and he said stop there's somebody back there and i thought oh god i'm gonna now i'm always afraid i'm gonna get fired he said uh who's back there come over here and he made jane come forward he said you can't see from back there get her a chair somebody and they brought her up and put her right by the camera and it was great so he, he was terrific and then and then in taps which i did after star trek my character is a Trekkie watching Star Trek. The whole thing was very, very, very weird. <laughs> and then you went on to executive produce The Martin Show with Martin Lawrence. Yeah. The first year of Martin, they had asked us to, uh, do you want to do a show for Martin Lawrence? And out in California, Martin Lawrence is a series of uh, galleries that are in malls. So I thought it was a show about a gallery. I was like, I don't know if I want to do that. And they sent me the tape and I realized it's a comedian named Martin Lawrence. And he was brilliantly funny. He was, I will say he was rough to work with. He was a little rough to work with, but I will, I will defend him this way. When you work with a stand-up comedian, as you, as you will know, they've been their own writer, producer, director for years. And then you suddenly, they suddenly come to you. You're the executive producer and you have to go, I know you've been doing this all yourself, but now I'm in charge. It makes for a, <laughs> it makes for a little tense uh, segue until they can trust you. But uh, Martin worked like a dog on that show. And it was groundbreaking in that I think it was the, the first show that really was a hybrid of a sketch show and a sitcom. And all the different characters he played, were, they were sketches, you know. It really opened up a lot of doors that way. And we had fun. We, we created uh, the character. Jane and I created the characters of Stan 
uh, Garrett Morris, and uh, we did uh, Otis, the security guard, and Roscoe, the little snot-nosed kid, and a couple other things. But it was it was uh, it was really fun. It was really fun. It was rough, but it was fun. I was working with SNL royalty. Garrett Morris was fantastic. I had so much fun writing that character of Stan. Everything we gave him to do. We started out, we didn't know how to do it because the, the character wasn't in the pilot. John Bowman and Martin wrote the pilot. And it was actually not, a, they called it a presentation, not a pilot, which means it was a cheaper budget and they only had to shoot like 15 minutes. So when it came time to turn it into a full half hour when they reshot it to make the first episode, they had to fill that extra time and John Bowman uh, let Jane and, and me create the character of Martin's boss at the radio station. So we started, we didn't know, quite know how to approach this. So we started writing him as a, a sleazy sort of uh, Louis De Palma character from Taxi. And then we sort of made it even more demented and a little sicker. And, little, and, and we had such a ball writing for him. And we actually brought Garrett, after we had left Martin and did uh, the Don Rickles show, uh, we brought Garrett on as that character. And uh, we had so much fun writing for him. And uh, I, I still run into him time to time. He's, he's a great guy and, and so funny. So funny. I was reading the book. You were married around this time, right? Is that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. And so the manager gives you a bread maker as a gift. Oh, yeah. And, then, <laughs> and you find a card in there. He had re-gifted it to you. Yeah, he did. He did. Martin's manager, because uh, I because Martin got, you got a little ab- abusive verbally with us time to time because, you know, he wanted the scripts funnier, and he threatened to kill people if he didn't make it funnier. It's like, oh, come on. So I had just gotten married uh, to Adrienne, and John Bowman talked uh, talked me into only taking a two-day honeymoon so I could get back and rewrite and write some more scripts, because Jane and I wrote almost all those, that first season of scripts. And so I agreed to come back, and I came back to get yelled at by Martin. I was like, you know what? I don't need this. So I went to his manager, and I said, uh, look. Uh, he's not going to talk to me like this anymore. He's not going to talk to Jane like this anymore. You know, and he said, oh, no, I'll, I'll talk to him. Hey, I never gave you a, a wedding present. Would you like a bread maker? I was like, what? Oh, sure. Okay. And the next day I got a bread maker. And I took it home and we opened it up and there was a card. Merry Christmas, Topper. So uh, thanks. <laughs> the reason that stood out to me is so funny is on my after I had my first kid, my first Father's Day where I was a father, my dad gave me a gift and he gave me a card and golf balls. And when I opened them up, they had the Minnesota title logo on them, which was a friend of the family's title company. They had given him the golf balls <laughs> and then he gave me the golf balls as a gift. And we always made fun of him for that forever. That's great. That's great. So when I read about the bread maker, it just, it yeah. just I just lost. It was just so funny. <laughs> so funny to me. Have you done a million things uh, we could cover, but uh, I do want to talk. So you worked with Andrew Dice Clay as well. Yes, yes I did. Bless this house. It was a good show. It was a really good show. Bruce Helford uh, created the Drew Carey show and Bless This House at the same time, which is, you know, it never happens. So they picked up both shows and Bruce was going to run one and, and he asked Jane and me to run the other one. So I went to uh, Les Moonvis, who was before he had gone to CBS as president. He was the president of Warner Brothers. And I said, which one should we take? He said, oh, take Bless This House because Drew Carey's not going to last two weeks. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> Drew, Carey, Drew Carey lasted, what, eight seasons or something like that? And, uh, and Bless His House, which was a good show. The ratings were good. The uh, 
Andrew and Kathy Moriarty were a great couple, real blue collar, believable, married couple. Lasted, I think, a half a season and Andrew pissed off somebody and they canceled the show. <laughs> so, uh, but he was, he was fun. The, uh, I really liked working with him, but he, every Thursday he would, there would be some problem on the set and then the writers aren't on the set on Thursday. If you're doing a Monday to Friday shoot, that's the camera day. The cameras come in. So we were back in the writer's room, and we always get a call on Thursdays. Uh, Andrew's uh, acting weird today. Andrew pretending there's a fly in the room when, all the time. Andrew's talking in a Spanish accent. And we'd always have to go down to the set and calm him down and would see what was going on. And it took me probably six, seven shows to realize it was because he didn't know his lines. Thursday was the day he had to know his lines. So not that he couldn't learn them. He just didn't learn them. So he'd make up some weird excuse to, to not be ready. So one week we had Elaine Stritch on the show, Broadway legend, and also legendary pain in the ass, basically, a demanding woman. Uh, I liked her a lot, by the way. I really liked her a lot. And we were told not to hire her because she was so rough. And I said, no, it's Elaine Stritch. I want her on the show. So again, <laughs> you know, somebody. Else. so I bring her on the show and she was a nightmare the entire week, the entire week. And I go down there on Thursday for something Elaine was doing. And I look over and I see Andrew sitting quietly in a chair. And I went up to him and said, what's the deal? I said, every week on Thursday, you got a problem with this. You got a problem with that. You got a problem with this. This week you are professional. You're on time. You know your lines. What's the deal? And he pointed to Elaine Stritch and said, there's only room for one. (laughs) She's awesome. She later went on to be, uh, L- I think, Alec Baldwin's mom on 30 Rock. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and then you got to work with Penny Marshall. Yeah, we did a, a show that should still be on the air. It was really so good. Uh, a British show called Waiting for God. It was a big hit over in, in England about two people in a, in a retirement community. Uh, a woman who doesn't want to be there and a guy who uh, he's childlike and, and uh, tries to bring her back to life, basically. It's a beautiful show. And we got the rights to the Penny, got Penny Marshall got the rights to that, uh, asked us to do it with Olympia Dukakis. We had Richard Mulligan from Empty Nest opposite her, uh, Michael McKeon, Julie Haggerty from Airplane and Lost in America. Uh, boy, was that good. It was so good. It did not get picked up, which shocked all of us because at the time, it was for CBS too, which it was a perfect fit for CBS. But they, they went through a phase, unfortunately, that year of wanting to cater to younger people. So we didn't get picked up. But uh, it was good. One of the best things we ever did. Their loss. Yeah. Their loss. Yeah. So I know there's a million, for everyone listening, they're like, wow, that's amazing. That's like we've scratched the surface. We could go. (laughs) (laughs) We've scratched the surface of of the amazing work that Billy and Jane have done together on TV. You guys also wrote 25 plays together. Yeah. Do you prefer theater over TV? I usually usually prefer whichever one I'm not doing at the time. (laughs) But the uh, theater is my first love. And uh, and we we, we, uh, acted in all our shows in the theater. So that would bring a little more fun for us, too. And I was doing the 25th play we wrote. Uh, they're all published uh, with Samuel French, and they're done all over the world, you know, regional theaters and summer stocks and all that sort of thing. Um, and now they're done internationally, which is really a lot of fun. I, we, I came back from Poland a, a year ago where I saw two of my plays, coincidentally, in two different theaters in Warsaw, Poland, at the same time, had no connection to each other. That was fun. 
the 25th play was a, a show, a, a musical review called The Boomer Boys Musical, and we were touring the, the country with it. And then the pandemic hit, so that put that on a shelf. And uh, if the world ever comes back to normal and live theater is a thing again, I hope, uh, we'll be back on the road doing that again. Very exciting. Very exciting. And then I want to just leave, when we were talking before, you mentioned you had a, a story about a past president. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, you know, I, I never talk political things. I just, I just don't talk political things at all. I can say, uh, and I've never told this story before. You'll you're the first to hear this. Richard Nixon saved my life. Uh, I was a kid and one of, he was, he was running, uh, for, I think it was for reelection in our hometown. And one of the neighborhood mothers dragged her kids and me down to see him. And this was in an open, open air mall in Eatontown, New Jersey. So we go there and because there were a bunch of kids, I, I think I was 10 or 10 years old, maybe they had us all the kids in the front, right, right, you know, right at the platform he was speaking at. He finished his speech and then he leaned forward to start shaking hands and a crush of people started coming at him and I started to go under and I reached up and grabbed his hand with two hands and yanked myself up onto the onto the platform. So Richard Nixon saved my life. <laughs> there you go. And so if so facto, Richard Nixon is now responsible for all the shows that we said, which wouldn't have existed. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> had that's you been right. crushed. Had you been crushed. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that's that was my that was my Richard Nixon story. All right. That's a good way to end, I think. Okay. Well, Great. I can't. I can't think. Well, let's talk about where we can find the book on Amazon and. Yes, uh, get in the car, Jane. Adventures in the TV Wasteland. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it at Barnes and Noble. And if you go to my website, www.vanzantmilmore.com, they're selling. Uh, there's a limited supply of autographed uh, hardcovers that I. I we're selling there too. You can go to my website without buying a book too. You can just see all the other things we've done. But uh, but thank you for that. And if and if you have read it and you like it, leave a review on Amazon. It always helps. I do highly recommend the book. I have read it and it is great. It goes into way more stuff than we talked about and deeper into the, some of the things we scratched the surface on. So definitely do it. Billy Van Zant, I can't thank you enough. Thank you. This was this is a lot of fun, Jeff. Thank you. Oh my God, how fun was that interview? Oh, I so enjoy talking to Billy Van Zant. So many great stories. And I totally recommend everyone getting his book, Get in the Car, Jane, Adventures in the TV Wasteland. It's at Amazon everywhere. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to the book. I've read it. It's great. I highly, highly recommend it. Also, during the interview with Billy, we talked about a couple of folks that he knows, Kelly Maroney and Carl Gottlieb. Guess what? I know them too. I interviewed them on the Jeff Dewaskin Show. You should totally check out those interviews. The Kelly Maroney episode was episode 25, and the Carl Gottlieb episode was episode 26. So check those out. Check out all the back catalog of the Jeff Dewaskin Show. So many great interviews, so many great stories. You're going to love them all. You're going to love them all. Thanks, Jeff, for the great recommendation. You're welcome. All right. Well, now it's that time. It's that time of the show where we talk about the hashtag trend of the week. That's right. Billy talked all about all the TV shows that he has worked on. So I dug into the archives and found one from Red's Hot Tags, the Sunday game on Hashtag Roundup. Hashtag Caffeinate, a TV show. That's right. The ultimate Caffeine and TV show mashup hashtag. 
I'm going to read off all of them to you. You can also retweet these good folks, these funny, hilarious tweeters, at Jeff DeWaskin Show. All the tweets will be there. I also list them all in the show notes. Show them some love. Download the Hashtag Roundup app. Follow us on Twitter at Hashtag Roundup, and you can play along, and one of your hashtags may show up on a future episode of the Jeff Dewaskin Show. How exciting is that? So exciting. I know. You're welcome. All right, let's do it. Let's mash up some caffeine and TV shows with Hashtag Caffeine a TV show. The political mainstay, meet the French press. Oh, the cartoon classic, South Perk. <laughs> Friday Night Lattes. Ooh, the football drama. Pretty Little Lattes. Ooh, that's a good one. Are you smarter than a cafe mocha? Hmm, I'm not sure. Where in the world is Carmel Macchiato? Oh, we're gonna have to go searching for her. Maxwell House Smart. Missed it by that much. Everyone loves Red Bull. Little Maxwell House on the Prairie. Oh, these caffeinated TV shows. They're rocking, aren't they? I'll take my coffee black, Mirror. <laughs> Welcome back, coffee. Ooh, that's uh, it's starring the Sweat Hogs. The Americanos. Yes, the Russian drama, the Americanos. I love latte instead of I love Lucy. All right. And then uh, Scooby-Doo. Oh, Scooby Mountain Dew. That's a good one. Maxwell House. Oh, starring the famous Dr. House. Eight Cups is Enough. Mad About Brew. Oh, Paul Reiser classic. The Big Brew Theory. Oh, that's a good one. Say Yes to the Press. Mr. Coffee Bean. And that, folks is how you mash up caffeine and TV shows. A masterclass in Twitter mashup. Play along with us on Hashtag Roundup. Well, that's it. We're at the end of another episode. Episode 28 has come and gone. Amazing conversation with Billy Van Zant. Can't thank him enough. Definitely check out his book. I want to thank everyone who's subscribed and liked and shared the Jeff DeWaskin show with their friends. If you're like, wait, I haven't done that, then do it. And go to like Apple Podcasts and stuff and leave a five-star review, leave a comment, glowing comment, and uh, help Get the word out of the Jeff DeWaskin show. I, Jeff DeWaskin, would greatly appreciate that. And that's all for this week. I can't thank you enough for joining me. I know you've got choices. And thanks for choosing the Jeff DeWaskin show. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you've heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.